Hello, everybody. In case you haven't heard on the previous episode, we now have a sponsor. It's the CBD brand that I personally take and the one that's helped me tremendously in the past several months. It's Chemistry Bionaturals, and it's a company that makes all-natural, organically grown CBD oils and topicals. Each blend of their line of products is terpene-infused to bring you the targeted benefits to suit your needs. They use 99% pure pharmaceutical-grade CBD isolates and a hemp seed carrier oil to bring you omegas 3s and 6s for inflammation and overall health. All the products are also THC-free. Now, besides potency, Chemistry Lab tests their products for pesticides, metals, and solvents to ensure the safety and quality of their products, which, by the way, are created in an FDA-registered facility. All these lab results are published on their website for 100% transparency of their products. What they say is in the bottle truly is what's in the bottle. Most other CBD companies aren't as transparent as Chemistry, so you can never truly know what you bought from most brands. To find out more information on CBD and terpenes, as well as shopping their products, visit their site at chemistrybionaturals.com. Our listeners will get 15% off their first order when using the code PARANORMAL at checkout. All this info will be in the description of the episode. Hello and welcome to the Paranormalist Podcast. As always, I am your host, Kenny Dodson, and I'm here with... Hi, I'm Patty Wilson, and the two of us together make a... Pair of Paranormalists. <laughs> <laughs> We're in a weird mood tonight, guys. Uh, that's because I just got to geek out about time. I know, and now I'm excited because we're going to do ghost stories, and I love nothing more in this world than a good ghost story. Yeah, I kind of drag you into various things other than ghosts. and <laughs> I try to follow along. I do. I hold on as tight as I can. This brain is not safe for you to be in this podcast. No, I'm just kidding. Um, okay. So, yeah, we're going to make them scary. I'm going to do my best. So, lead on, Captain. All right. So, I have recently... Um, come across a ghost story that I really found interesting and intriguing. I don't know if scary is the right word, but it was to me, it was like one of those, ooh, that's really good kind of stories. And I don't get many of those anymore because I've written 4,000 ghost stories and probably read 10 times that many over the course of my lifetime. But um, it was actually, um, what caught my attention is that it was an Amish ghost story. You don't see many Amish ghost stories. They technically don't believe in ghosts, but... Um, you know, it's part of human experience. And so those stories do exist. And this story actually starts back in the 1950s and comes into modern times. And the story is about a place in Lancaster called Crybaby Bridge. And um, I'm sure it has route numbers and all that, but the locals have always called it Crybaby Bridge because of the lurid thing that happened there. And the story goes that there was a uh, young Amish woman. She was married and um, had just had a little baby. The baby was about four months old. She was in town and um, doing marketing. And the person who had brought her to town left and just left her there. She was very upset. And as you can imagine, she had to get home. And um, so an Englishman, they call um, anyone who's not Amish the English. 
Okay, or an, an Englisher. Right. And so um, a, an Englishman offered her a ride home. And he was a very nice gentleman. He took her, you know, home. And he even helped her carry her stuff inside the house. And Laura at least up onto the porch. And mm-hmm. then he left. He didn't know thing wrong. And, um, but some neighbors who were also Amish saw. And, of course, a married woman is not allowed to be alone with another man, let alone an Englisher. So the gossip starts. And soon her husband finds out he's not a happy camper. And he won't let her touch her baby. He won't let her... Um, you know, she's she's basically being shunned within her household, you know, where she can't touch her, her baby and cuddle her baby and he won't talk to her and what have you. And he basically drives her out. Eventually, um, very Christian, he uh, he does drive her out of the house. And mm-hmm. um, one night, it's the middle of the winter, she, and the baby's four months old. She can't stand what's going on. I'm sure it was very emotionally disturbing. And um, she sneaks into the house. She takes the baby and she starts off down the road. Um it seems that her intent was if she couldn't have the baby, she was going to end their lives because she had no way to redeem herself. You know, in their culture, once you're you're marked or tainted because of something, it is that way. Yeah. So it's a very harsh culture in that respect. So she climbs up on this little bridge, this little concrete bridge, and she jumps into the water and she and the baby die. Well, even dying doesn't seem to be enough because what happens is she just disappears. At first, everybody's whispering, you know, she ran off with the baby and took it to meet the Englisher. And so it takes days and days before the baby's um, little blue blanket surfaces down the river. And um, some of her clothing, you know, her hat and what have you, surfaces. And then began to realize that she must have jumped into the river with the baby um, and committed suicide. So um, a few... Weeks later, her husband sound asleep in bed. In the middle of the night, he hears what sounds like the baby crying in the bedroom downstairs where the baby had slept previously. And he's still not convinced she hasn't run off with an Englisher. So he jumps out of bed, lights a, a lamp, and he starts down the stairs when he hears the baby crying, thinking she brought the child back. And when he goes down to the be- to the baby's room, um, he sees nothing in there at first and he raises the lamp higher and then in the corner of the room there's a movement and she steps forward and it's her and she's holding the baby and it's described as she was giving off a pale blue light and so was the baby and her face her eyes were black her skin was all blue and where her mouth and her um her chin would have been was kind of eaten away and just black and raw and, um, of course, he screamed and took off. That would be enough to do it for me. And um, he told the, the deacon, and they came in, and they don't, nobody saw anything but him. But he would see this the rest of his life, that he would from time to time see her and the baby. Um, almost as if it was a retribution <clears throat> for his harshness yeah. with her. Yep. But that's the genesis of the story. But it's also said that she will um, she haunts the bridge. And that you can call her and the baby up. And the story goes that there were um, four or five Amish teenagers who were in Rumspringa, which is the <laughs> the time when they party Rumspringa! hard. Rumspringa! Yeah, they, they, for those who don't know, it's a That's time whenever <laughs> you, um, 
they go and join the English basically and they live in our society and they just, they drink and they party a lot. And the idea behind it is after they get it out of their systems, they're going to want to go back to their families and their homes. And at the end of this, they have to make the decision on whether they're going to be Amish or they're going to join the English. And so these kids are out and they're in the middle of the Rumspringa period of their time and they're in a car and they go out into the crybaby bridge. And one of them gets the bright idea that they're going to call up the woman and the baby and the, the legend you know there's a lot of folklore and urban legends and stuff so the urban legend was that if you took your turn your car off in the middle of the bridge and put your keys on the hood of the car and you walked out screaming you know you want to talk to the, you want to see the baby you want to see the baby that you'll hear the baby cry and they'll appear so that's the legend that's what they decided to do it's the middle of winter it's bitingly cold and they can't come up with anything better to do than this. So middle of winter, and they and, want to go near water. Well, they're in the on the bridge. You know, they're not yeah. in the water. But don't you have to go down below to call nope. them up? You have. Oh, you just okay. sit on, stand on the bridge, okay. by the car, and you just start yelling. Because I've heard other types of stories that you have to like get at the water's edge. So nope, they just had to do this. Well, um, you know, a, a lot of things that's typical to a teenage group is that they're not going to let anybody be chicken, you know? Yeah. So they all have to go out and pile out of the car and they put the keys on the dash on the hood and they start, he starts walking around the car yelling, you know, I want to see the baby. I want to see the baby. And, um, all of a sudden the keys go skittering across the hood of the car. And of course everybody kind of panics for a second. It would take, hellacious wind and there was not that kind of wind to blow the keys across the hood and then they hear the crying start and this would have been in the early 2000s so this was not a, an old time legend and uh according to the story um the girls take off screaming because they're scared mm -hmm. and the two guys take off screaming trying to catch the girls because they're running into the woods in the middle of the night and it's freezing cold and if they get lost you know it's a bad thing and he takes off the young man who called for the baby. He takes off in a different direction. The story um, for him is that he hears the, the baby's cries following him. And he, um, he had grabbed the keys when he ran and put them in his pocket. And he's out in the middle of nowhere. And, he's, and he can hear the screaming. And he's kind of looking around trying to see what's going on. And he thinks he sees somebody moving in the shadows, but he's not sure. And... All of a sudden, he hears the tinkle of the keys rattling, and they're hanging off of a tree branch. And when he reaches up to grab them, they're hot. And he drops them into the snow and digs down in there and gets them. And when he looks up, she's standing there. And he takes off running and ends up running out in front of a car that stops and picks him up. The other two young men are trying to find the girls, but they can't seem to locate them. And they can hear the crying, and they hear somebody running through the woods, and they think it's him but they see the shadow of a woman moving from time to time and then um the long and the short of it is they see her out on the water and then she's gone but the girls are also gone and the young men run back out and they get on the highway and they find the flag down somebody and they get help what happened to the girls is not known um, is there a record of this that they've disappeared well here's the problem oh. um they're amish so there's no record of any of it because they don't, I mean, short of going to the police, and the Amish aren't going to the police. Well, they still have to have a state ID, don't they? If they're doing... There, there are things that the government makes them do. If they're... They don't to, have to have a state ID. I mean, there's people... There's English that don't have a state ID. 
Hmm. But I mean, they're teenagers, so or birth certificate. I don't know. There's something, isn't there? There has to be a way to keep track of them. But um, you know, they were teenagers, so I doubt that the girls had a whole lot of yeah. paperwork on them. You know, at that point in time. And um, but anyhow, I just found it a fascinating story in part because it reminded me of a story that Mark Nesbitt tells. Um, down in Gettysburg College, there's a story about a blue child. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it or not. Um, there was an orphanage down there that was built at the end of the Civil War. And the um, second person to run it, her name was Rosa Carmichael. She was an absolutely evil human being. She was abusive to the children and neglectful. She had picked a couple of the big boys and they were her lieutenants and they would beat the kids. And there's actually a pit in the basement of what was the orphanage where she would put them in there in a big vat of water and they'd have to hang on and when their arms would get tired they could they'd almost drown there's stories of her locking children in the outhouse in the dead of winter um as a punishment she was just a mean bad person she was so bad they ran her out of town on a rail and they tried her for child abuse at a time when there was nobody being tried for child abuse that Mm -hmm. tells you how bad she was so um during that time frame um some of the children fled and other families that knew what was going on because it was common knowledge in the town um, that something bad was going on at the orphanage, that um, they were taking in some of these children. And uh, there were two young ladies um, at the dorm, it was called Old Hall on Gettysburg campus, who had found a little boy about 10, 11 years old who was wafer thin and terrified of this woman. And they brought him in. It's the middle of winter. And they take him upstairs so he can be warm. They sneak food to him and they're trying to keep him safe. But they know if the headmistress finds out, she's definitely going to turn him in. So one night, the headmistress, um, she's kind of got an idea something's really odd going on in the building. And so she hauls all the girls downstairs. And the little boy is in the room. And she says she's going on a tour of the room. So one of the girls goes up real quick. And she gets him out on the window ledge and tells him, don't move. Don't move. She'll go past and then we'll get you in. And um, he's hanging on that window ledge, you know, trying to be quiet and shivering. And it's bitterly cold. And it takes forever for her to move on. And finally, whenever the way is clear, they go flying over to the window and, and and he's gone. He's just gone. So they go running downstairs thinking he must have fallen off the ledge, you know, and into the snow. But they never find him. Hmm. But after that... People to this day, people at the dorm talk about seeing a little boy with a blue face and a blue glow about him hanging off the window ledge or on the window ledge, or he'll look in the window. And there have been stories from um, people who have stayed in that particular room of now, this is the second or third floor up, so it's not something that you could do from the ground floor of somebody from the outside writing the word help or help me on the window backward, so as though they were outside doing it. But there's a sheer ledge there. There's no way to easily climb up there to do so. So he's known as the blue boy. Mm. And it just kind of reminded me of that. And I thought I thought both of those stories were just, um, I think they're eerie, just exceedingly eerie stories. Well, anything that has somebody disappearing is always scary. When not, not the from the ghost aspect, but like if those two girls are just gone spirited away or whatever what have you but that's uh unless they just got separated ran away decided the amish life wasn't for them and assimilated into society that could be i guess but 
that doesn't sound i don't know well i think i said there's an element of mystery to both of them because the girls apparently were gone and the little boy never was found and there were no tracks like leading away or anything like that in the snow what happened to him is anybody's guess but apparently he died there because he haunts there Mm -hmm. and i've just always thought the those that story was very um eerie and spooky and so when i heard this story i thought oh that's shades of the story mark tells yeah well anything also besides the disappearances thing anything that has something looking in your window freaks me out anybody like, who's I was, blue I, is well i was scared i've been scared like i never so i'm terrified of the dark uh-huh. and i don't have a problem admitting it uh, <laughs> hi i'm kenny i have a problem with the dark um but like the idea of just like anytime it's nighttime and the windows like the blinds are up or whatever mm-hmm. close it no mm-mm, not happening because i don't want to see something I don't like... I don't even um, think there's anything that's going to be outside. I just don't even want my brain to trick me into thinking that there was. I don't like... it's so scary. Things... The the mirror effect of the darkness on the window panes. That's um, frightening. It always looks like there's someone behind you or something. Yeah. Yeah. And and I guess like when my boys were little, um, my youngest son in particular would talk about um we had these i think they're called catapoetries indian cigar trees in our backyard yeah and he was terrified of these trees just terrified um he would um do anything to stay away from them at night and we had a dog and when what would happen with our dog her name is puka is that we had a box out there because it was shady and when we would leave in the morning, we would put her out there. She'd have like 20 minutes to run and go to the bathroom and do her business and stuff. And then our neighbor next door would come and get her and he'd spend, he was a retired man and she'd spend the day with him. And then in the afternoon, we would go over and get her. He'd bring her over. So every morning, one of us had to go out and, and hook her on her lead and, and leave her water and food. And then our, our neighbor would come and get her within 15, 20 minutes. But it always gave her a chance to go to the bathroom and eat and what have you. And my youngest son was terrified. He said that there were men in the trees and that these, these beings would creep down the trees. And what he found, I guess one of the things he found so um, frightening was that they would climb down head first, if you can imagine. Well, these are the people in the trees. The people in the trees. From that other episode, right? Yeah. Yeah. And he was terrified about the windows. Mm-hmm. He kept saying they would come in at night and they would watch him us through the windows and i'm i've never seen a child more adamant about um making sure all the window blinds and the curtains were shut and the windows were locked i literally had a ritual at night where i had to go through the whole house and lock every window show him it was locked and then pull all the blinds and then shut all the curtains because he was totally convinced as a child that these things were watching him Duh. <laughs> that one that one makes me shiver yeah and i will tell you that he's not alone my oldest son like one day years and years and years later they're all sitting in the living room and we're telling stories you can imagine we're storytellers and um my son starts talking my youngest son starts talking about the men in the trees and um he calls them the tree people and my oldest son turns white and he looks at him and he's like you saw them too and i'm like and he's like, man, why do you think I stopped parking out back, mom? I saw them. Matter of fact, one night, they, one of them grabbed my ankle. 
And I was terrified. That's when I stopped parking out back and I started parking down the street. So what, they just stayed near that tree? They seem to be favor that particular type of tree, but mm-hmm. um, they stayed they stayed in the those that big tree out there is what the boys kept telling me. And Puka would bark into that tree and back up at night. So we wouldn't put her outside at night because she would just bark and carry on and back up. Um, like she didn't want to be under that tree. Well, they're sensitive too, right? Exactly. But, but you never saw anything. I never saw How? anything there because I didn't spend a lot of time back oh, okay. there. I just didn't. Yeah. Only time I was ever back there would be in the daytime when the boys were outside. I would always sit in the back porch. Um, I have a question. Mm-hmm. Is there any record of women seeing people in the trees? Not that I'm aware of. I never thought of that, but that, not that I'm aware of. But I've come across a few isolated stories of them. Um over the course of time, because I've asked around, you know, because the boys were so adamant about yeah, it. Yeah, but they were all men, right? They were all male that saw them, all of them, including hmm. um, when we had moved probably 10 miles away by the time my youngest son was 17 and him and a friend had gone on a day hike. And you know how guys are, they get putzing around and doing stuff and then it gets time gets lost and they forget it's time to go. And by the time they started down out of the mountain, it was getting dark. So, um, it was probably 930 at night when they come flying in the house. And I mean like flying, we had a sliding glass door and that thing comes shooting open and then bam closed and they shoved a lock down on it. And I'm like, what's wrong with you guys? And they're like, we saw them, we saw them. And the other boy, this was the interesting part to me, who had not heard the stories to the best of my knowledge. And he's not sensitive. And he's not to, well, I don't know if he is or not, but he never talked about it. Mm -hmm. Um, He's like, oh my God, you should have seen these things. They were like seven feet tall. They were like big shadow things. And they came down out of the trees and they were like, and he was going on like a mile a minute. And um, Ben's like, it was a tree people, mom. It was a tree people. It was a tree people. And he was adamant that these things climbed out of the trees and were chasing them down out of the woods. So that one, your first house. Mm Mm-hmm. Do I walk past there? No. Okay. It, it's, <laughs> when I go for walks with the kids and stuff? No. Okay. It's not in Bedford. Avoid. It's, it's avoid. Um, oh. in another little town outside of Bedford. Okay. So he's seen them around the county then? Multiple times, yes. And so, and uh, my oldest son has seen them a couple places as well. Hmm. Yeah. So I don't think they're just um, there. But when you said about the glass and the windows, I can remember every night, it became such a pain in the butt because, you know, you get tired and you were busy and you were doing stuff and and they would not go to bed until you made the circuit and you made sure that there was nothing watching them from the windows. Yeah. You know, I'm afraid of the dark. Why? My cousins used to scare the crap out of me all the time. That was not nice. They would jump around corners and whatnot. One time my one cousin had a balloon and he put the balloon in the bathroom with me when I was getting a shower and I turn and look and there's this balloon floating there. They, <laughs> they would do all kinds of stuff. But um, yeah, it, well, they didn't think that they were going to emotionally scar me for life. Well, I'm but, sure they didn't care at that point. They're probably te- kids themselves. So yeah, they were just kids. So um, yeah, it's just funny that, that I'm like, that carries on to this day that I'm still freaked out about like what's lurking around the corner. It's just like, it's not, I'm not even thinking about it. It's just my intuition, my instinct, I guess 
is just like always be on your guard now because of, of what they used to do. But hmm. I don't know how to fix it. It's like, how do you fix being afraid of the dark exp- except being exposed to it, I guess, almost. And uh, I'm less now than I, I've used to be. I used to be like I couldn't even remotely do anything near dark. Yeah, I, I'm not afraid of the dark. I actually had myself locked in a haunted basement one time on purpose. By yourself? Mm-hmm. Ew. Nope. The first time I ever was um, locked alone in a building, um, this was years. I was 17 years old, and this was this old farmhouse. Why locked? Well, that's the story. Okay. Um, and this young woman who was graduating high school, so I was maybe 16, 17, and she was a year or two older than me. She came up to me, and she said, hey, my mom wants to talk to you. And her mom, I didn't know her mom at all. But, um, and I knew her a little bit because we shared a single class together from time to time. We would talk and I'm like, for what? And she's like, I don't know. But my mom said to invite you over for supper and she'll make sure you get transportation home. Now this is a different era. So people were a lot more trusting. So I said to my mom about it and she's like, oh yeah, I know the family. They're fine. If you want to go have dinner, that's cool. Mm -hmm. Um, today we would like, you know, take out a warrant and run their background check and trace their phone yeah (laughs) see where it pings to and all this but back then you know people just trusted more sure and uh, so i went to dinner with them and she said you know my house is haunted and i said yes i was immediately aware that there was somebody there and she said so tell me about this person that you see and i said well it's a male and he's from a long time ago because I was just learning to use it at the time. And I said, I don't understand why, but I see fire. And she started to smile and she said, okay, you're sensitive. And I'm like, maybe. Because like, remember, I was told never to admit right. it. Yeah. And she's like, no, you are, honey. She's like, so um, it turned out that she was um, sensitive and she was also, a, a, she read, fortunes red hands red palms and she had been taught this by her mother and by her mother's mother and on and on it was a family tradition her daughter did not want to learn it and so she was looking for somebody to teach and her daughter had mentioned that i was really interested in the paranormal and what have you and so she had sent for me to see if i would be the one to teach and um so she um it turned out that the house was haunted by this male entity and he um when the children were little he would set fires all over the house and to the point where they literally kept their matches in a locked box and anything that could light a fire in this locked box. And still matches would turn up, the old barn burner type matches would turn up um, in a corner smoldering or on top of a stove lit or something. And um, this went on for a long time and they actually burned down one corner of the house. Hmm. It was one of those big old farmhouses that was built like in stages. You know, there was like a log and a stone and another wood piece. And the um, newer piece, the wood piece, was burnt down. Well, anyway, um, she had a little shepherdess that she, like a little uh, ceramic shepherdess that was like a keepsake from her mother and her grandmother and was passed down through the family too. And she kept it on the mantle. And he would, whoever this male ghost was, he would drop it. It never broke. And, um, this happened four or five times. And she said she actually had her husband put like a little, um, border around the top of the mantle so it couldn't slide off. Cause her husband was like, oh, it's vibrations. 
the kids are running around and it's an old house. Mm -hmm. One of those things. And one day in front of all of them, while they had company, the thing picked itself up and threw itself all the way across the room. And she was furious because this was important to her. Mm -hmm. So she stood up and she started screaming, I cannot believe you did that. Because it shattered. She's like, that meant something. And she's you know, yelling at it, basically telling, how dare you? Did and, the husband see that? Yep, he oh, saw okay. it. And he, actually, I talked to him about it. Okay. And he admitted, he's like, yep, that's when I became a believer. Mm -hmm. And um, three or four days later, um, they had, um, the kids were downstairs in the basement cleaning out the uh, coal chute so they could put coal in for the winter. They sweep it out and get it ready for the next season because coal dust will gather gas. And so you always cleaned it out. Hmm. And... Um, they were down there doing this, and in one of the corners, there was a, some coal and coal dirt and stuff, you know, and they were digging into it, pulling it out, and out came a shepherdess. It was dirty and scrungy looking, but it was exactly like the shepherdess that had gotten shattered. So they took it upstairs, and they were all excited, and um, they showed their mom, and she's like, I don't understand. So she washes it off, and then she looks underneath it, and there had been a little chip out of the shepherdess's skirt, but it was like up in underneath where you really couldn't see it very well. Mm -hmm. It was the same one put back together again without a mark. It wasn't glued. It was put back together. But there was one little mistake, you're saying? But the what was originally there was still there. The, oh, okay. the little notch out of the dress inside that had been there for dozens and dozens of years Whoa. was still there. Which is how she knew it was her shepherdess, not just a shepherdess. But there, ghosts have the power for creation. Sometimes, like apparently, that? this and she still had it. I mean, she did Jeez. have it, and she thought it was kind of like his peace offering. Mm -hmm. And in the oldest part of the house, um, there was a bedroom that was um, very uncomfortable like nobody ever wanted to sleep there and it was the closet that was the worst mm -hmm. the light would turn itself on in the closet when there was nobody had the big long pool chain but the most interesting part is that after a while because the light bill was going up um her husband went in and unscrewed the light and the light would still turn on even though there wasn't a light they would come through and they would see a light burning in the closet open the door and it would the turn light bulb was on no there was no bulb in it just the glow of a white la of a light oh, like okay. there was one there I thought you meant like he took the bulb out and it was making the bulb light up. No, it okay. was just it was just like it was hanging there, this mass of light where huh. the at the end of the, the fixture where it should have had a bulb. Weird. So um, she took me through the house. And again, I'm 16 years old, you know. And she said, tell me when you hit the room. She didn't tell me the story. She's at that point. She said, just tell me when you hit a room where you feel something. So I got to that room and I'm like, whoa, this is really strong. And it was, for me, it was intriguing because this was the first time I'd ever been allowed to, like, stretch my wings. Mm -hmm. And she's like, where? And I said, the closet. And I walked in and I told her, I said, there's, the guy comes into this closet. And I honestly think he hung himself in the closet is what I really think happened there. And I told her that. And she said, okay. She's like, so just walk around the room a little bit. And she said, I'll be right back. She ran out of the room and she locked the door and turned the light off. I was not familiar with this room at all. I was not familiar with anything about this room. I knew there was a little door on the far end that opened into a little porch, like a second floor porch. Yeah. And there were two beds with the old feather ticking that was rolled up. 
because nobody wanted to sleep in that room. Why would she do that to you? Well, I was scared. That's really not cool. And I was scared. I was a kid. Okay. And I'm sitting there in the dark waiting for the thing to get me, you know, and trying to understand why she would do this. And she left me in there for about a half an hour. And then she came up and she said, you didn't scream and you didn't yell. And I said, no, I didn't. She's like, you're not crying. And I said, no, I'm not. And she said, why is that? And I said, I don't know. Hmm. I just knew I was going to be safe. And she smiled at me and she said, that's what I wanted you to learn. She was teaching me in a, a kind of creepy way. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> how, yeah. how to use my own senses. Right. But I don't know that I would have learned that lesson so well, so fast in any other fashion. Mm -hmm. It was like my sense of self-preservation kicked in because I could feel him in there. And I could feel he was right beside me and I didn't want him to touch me. And he didn't. And he didn't. I was like, I. But you didn't him. communicate with him either. No, because I was still so young, and I. But at that moment, I was just more concerned with, "Don't touch me, please." Mm -hmm. Interesting. But I got that. Like I said, I got that sense that he hung himself in that closet. Dude, if someone locked me in a dark place, I would lose it. They'd be cleaning things up off the floor. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> so anyhow, I, that's that's how I kind of got over the fear of all that being alone in a dark place with uh, dead people. Mm. And now I'm okay with it. Yeah. I don't even know what I'm afraid of. That's the funny thing. You just have the fear, an irrational fear, but it's there yeah. and it's compelling. Yeah, because I'm not like, oh, I'm scared of ghosts because I'm really not particularly, you know. Right. So, I don't know. Whatever. I'll try to get over it and then I'll tell everybody how I did it. <laughs> Exposure therapy. Just throw me out in places. In places that are dark. But, but it's funny. I say like people, if if anybody was like, like say if Jenna like went away or something, people would know exactly where I was in the house because all I have to do is follow the lights as they flick on. <laughs> and then you'll see turn off, turn off, turn off, turn off all the way back up. So um, yeah, that's how I, that's how I live my life. Always reaching in for the, the little switch. That's interesting. I accidentally burned down a house once. Excuse me? <laughs> okay. But let's go with that for right now. We'll get back to spooky ghost stories in a second. Wow. Well, this could be spooky. All right. Okay. Tell me the story. Okay. So one time I had a baseball game. And after said baseball game, I went to my friend's house. And I was going to have a sleepover. And we were going to go to the drive-in movie. And so I put my stuff down on their stove um, because I don't even know why that, that was just like, um, and we, we, I put my stuff down and then we're like, we got to go. So I, I put the stuff down and then we bounced, right? We left. So we went to the, the drive-in movie. I, we watched the movie. I wake up and we're at his house again, but it's on fire. And I didn't know what was going on. I'm like, well, where is everybody and all that? Um, so it turns out that his dog jumped up and turned on the, the stove, which happens quite often, apparently for people with dogs. So that's a warning to you or to make you terrified that your dog can burn down your house. But, um, it, it turned on the stove and it cooked my clothes 
and it burned his house basically wow but it was for the best after all because they were happy where they moved next and stuff they got this cool house in the middle of the woods and you would like it i promise if you ever went up there but um it was it's really eerie but really cool house and um they wouldn't have had it if it wasn't for me putting my stuff on their stove so i i felt bad but then it turned out for the better so i don't feel as bad anymore but it's their dog's fault that's right it's a Let, dog. let's be honest it's not my fault see you were accepting blame where you shouldn't have yeah i mean it's just one of those things that it was it was just a what are the of events. what are the chances that a dog's gonna cook your clothes while you're away you know what i mean so but now every single time i have something on top of the stove i make sure to move it away from the burner that was used or you know what what have you yeah. just because i'm overly cautious with stoves now because now, of that well, that's how our our house fire was we had a a kitchen fire and um i would always tell the boys to take everything off of the burner that they used mm-hmm. and of course the boys being boys they would roll their eyes at me like i was an idiot and leave it there and i was always taught to take it off yeah and one day they turned off something and it didn't go all the way off it just kind of hung on that little edge and it was um it caught fire mm-hmm. and it burned our house so now my boys are exceedingly cautious as well I mean, like at the beginning, like they would unplug the stove every time they used it. I mean, they would pull it out and unplug the the two twenty line because we had an electric stove. They were terrified for the longest time, and they're still very, very cautious people about it because it it just left a scar. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But you were talking about dogs jumping, and it reminded me of a very creepy tale about a yes. Okay. See, I knew I would jog your memory for this. Is a this is I've, um, probably one of the creepiest things that I ever had happen. And it's a story that doesn't have an ending yet. So it may still... I don't like those. Well, I hate to break it to you, but I'm not sure what the ending because I know is. Because I know what that means usually. But go ahead. Um, so right around the time that Ghost Hunters came on TV, um, I got a phone call from a friend of mine who had caught a case. And he's from Rhode Island. And he said, it's in Pennsylvania, Patty, will you do it? And he said, it's, it's a pretty serious case. And I said, sure. And I had never done a demonic case. This was my very first one. And I didn't know it was a demonic case when I accepted it. I thought it was a haunting. And it was, um, there was this young lady and her husband. And she had a friend who was staying with them, a girlfriend who was staying with them. They lived in a beautiful house out in the woods. And um, of course, in the middle of nowhere, of course, and it was like a two hour drive from my house to this place. So I begin to and the story. I talked to the girl, the girlfriend on on the phone a couple times, which was an in and of itself a, an amazing, difficult task because I would call out there and it would not ring. I actually would have to call the, the operator back in the day when you had an operator mm-hmm. and I would have to have the operator figure out how to get us through and sometimes they'd have to take 40 minutes to do it because the phone wouldn't ring on their end and on multiple occasions they had their phone checked or I would get them on the phone and then the phone would cut itself off and I'd have to do it again and again and again because it was a two-hour drive I wasn't driving out there every time I wanted to have a conversation yeah for sure so the first thing I remember the first thing they said and this was the thing that totally convinced me that whatever was going on was legit and that was the girl started to cry when she's saying about her friend being haunted and things being bad there and she said do we have to be on tv to get some help 
Now, when somebody calls me up and says, hey, I want to be on TV, then I know it's probably a hoax or something. Right. But when they're sobbing and begging and saying, please don't put us on TV, we just need help. Then I know there's something legit going on. Right. And the story behind that she told me was that um, this girl's husband had um, been in the basement working out and he had seen... Um, a woman who looked just like his wife walked through the room towards the laundry room, but she was in a white nightgown or a white dress. And he was like, yelled after her, hey, it's three o'clock in the afternoon. What the heck are you doing in your nightgown? And she didn't answer him. So he gets up off the weight bench and he walks into the room and she's not there. And there's nowhere else for her to go on. So he's standing there puzzled and the dog starts to bark behind them and he turns around, he looks, and she's there for a second, and then she's just gone. And then from the other side of the room, he hears a voice call his name. It sounds just like his wife, but there's nobody there. And to make matters worse, a few minutes later, while he's still trying to figure this out, his wife and the girlfriend pull in in the car. They weren't even in the house at the time. Hmm. So it's that kind of creepy, that level. And they had seen a man on the steps. And as far as they knew, nobody had ever died in a house or on the property or anything like this. And it was just escalating. That's the part they told me. Is this expanding upon the story that you kind of mentioned in episode two, the ghost versus demons thing? That it would go up the steps and it would be, it would look like her or look like her and then come down the steps and be something totally different. No, this is a different story. Oh, okay. This is a different story. Okay, gotcha. Um, What went up the stairs into the second floor would always be a man with... Um, dark pants and a, a checked shirt. Okay. Always. Um, and nobody ever saw its face, so nobody could tell you what it was. Just that it looked male. Mm-hmm. So, um, I make arrangements to come out to see her at this place, and along come with me um, are three of my uh, two friends of mine and an, an investigator. So we drive the two hours out to the place, and we get there, and the door is hanging open, and the windows are hanging open, and it's. It's Easter time, kind of cold and damp. And um, we're standing there and knocking on the door thinking, you know, somebody's got to be here. Nobody locked up. There's no cars in the driveway. And so I'm like, well, maybe they ran to the store for something. We'll just wait a half hour because we've driven so far. So um, we're waiting and still nothing. And then we start to hear what sounds like noises in the house. And um, so I thought, well, I'll call into the house and then the barking starts and we realize there's a dog in the house somewhere so I, I had already started calling and dialing and listening to the thing and you can hear the dog barking and then you hear the phone pick itself up and drop and I'm like that must have been the dog it must have jumped up on the wall and knocked the phone off because they had a house phone mm-hmm. and after about an hour of sitting in the woods doing nothing we decided to leave obviously nobody was coming back right away so a couple of days later, I get a phone call from the girlfriend and she's like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. But like 10, 15 minutes before we expected you, we had to call the ambulance. Suddenly she couldn't breathe. Um, you know, and, and she tells me this whole story. So every time we would try to come to see her, something bad would happen to her. Um, and mm. it would try to make us avoid her. We did finally see her and on multiple occasions. And that's when we realized that this woman was demonically possessed. And um, I don't use that term loosely. She is probably the most um, vivid possession I've ever personally seen. And um, 
but I remember the first time I walked in the house, I looked at the phone and I realized there's no way the dog could have knocked it off because they kept him locked in this one area and there's a door he would have had to have opened <clears throat> and um, he, he couldn't have gotten through to knock the phone off. And the interesting thing is whatever knocked the phone off picked it up and put it back on the receiver about uh, 20 minutes later. So they didn't find it off? No, they didn't oh, okay. find it off. And whenever um, I called them, it was on like 20 minutes later. Because I kept calling as we were leaving, you know, every yeah. so often to tell them, you know, I'm sorry. So she just, so she was already possessed at that point? Yes, and she, just, she had been for probably five years. And it would just do things to her whenever she was supposed to meet with you? It got really, really bad. We had a preacher come in a couple times with us and and it was really sad i mean like uh, i mean it sounds easy to say it's scary but it the sadness of it was the thing that overwhelmed me because i remember uh, a couple times as i was leaving or coming she would grab my hand and she would say no matter what i say no matter what i do please don't leave me here with this please and then she'd scream get out get out i don't want you here so it would come she would come through every now and then yes and, um, and then there were times when, and with multiples, it's splinters of the same personality. They never, they don't usually see themselves as somebody separate and distinct. Right. Um, cause the way to get rid of multiples is to make them aware of each other. Right. Right. Yeah. What's well, one of the things and then kind of merge them together. Right. 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 Um, anyway, um, she would say things to her husband, like you never listen to her when she's talking. You never listen to her. Do you? I listen when she talks, but you don't. Like really as though she were a third party. Hmm. And um, it was just a really an unusual case in that respect. And then she started getting worse um, as the minister started to work with her. And sometimes that happens. Um, they'll get worse. Right. And she started having these blackout sessions where she would just be driving. And the next thing he'd know, three days go by and she'd just finally come back home. Hmm. And she would have no recollection of where she was. Like she would just say, I woke up in a car in the middle of the woods and there was enough gas to get to a gas station. So I got to a gas station and then called you and came home. So she doesn't know what she did while she was... She has no clue or had no clue. This went on as we were trying to work on it. We had some really interesting things happen. Like um, one of my investigators, she had a little um, cross that was made out of wood and it was on a little rawhide thing. And... Again, it was wintertime. So she had on a turtleneck top. Mm -hmm. She had on a sweater over that, like a pullover. And then over that, a big button-up sweater. And she had her turtleneck tucked into her pants. And she had the cross under all of this. You couldn't see it. Okay. And she contacted me. She, uh, she called me into the room she was in and working in. And she said, Patty, something's really wrong. And I said, what? And she said, my cross is gone. And I'm like, what do you mean your cross is gone? Because I didn't even know she had one on. Yeah. And she explained to me that she had taken it out and put it on before she got there. And that um, she hadn't told anybody. So we're looking all around. I'm like, well, it must have fallen. She's like, no, Patty, if it would have come off the, the rawhide would have untied or ripped or something, it would have fallen into my shirt. Right. Because my shirt's tucked into my pants. Right. And she, she, you know, she pulled her shirt out and she shook it out and we there was nothing there. So as we're... Um, going to exit the room, I go to move the door and hanging on 
the hook where you would hang like a house coat or something, a robe, was her cross still tied and just hanging there as though somebody had hooked it on there for her. Or did she black out and took it off and... I don't think so. I don't really think so. I think it took it, it off. It sounds like of she her. was missing time. No, this is the investigator who did that. Oh, this is an okay. investigator who called me into the room and said, oh, okay. I, "I put this on before I left, and not I didn't tell anybody." And it came off the investigator in the house. In the house, it oh, okay. came off the investigator's neck and was hanging on the hook in the bedroom, and she didn't feel anything. Mm -hmm. She wasn't aware of anything, and it wasn't like it fell on the floor and because it got untied somehow. Right. It was hanging there, so somebody had deliberately placed it there to scare us, to show us that the cross meant nothing to them. Okay. And so, so how did you the, handle it? Well, I mean, we were, we were still in the middle of the whole process, okay? Yeah. And then all of a sudden, things got really bad about trying to be able to communicate. Like, it was hours and hours of trying to call through operators, and nothing would happen. And finally, after a few days of this, I decided I'm going to have to make that long drive again. So I decided to drive down and see them. It was a Saturday morning. I asked a friend to come along because I never went to that house by myself. Good. And um, we drove up and there at the end of the, the lane is a for sale sign. And I knew her husband worked at a county prison and he made good money. And um, I was really surprised they would be selling the house because mm -hmm. they had never mentioned anything about it to me. So I pull up to the house and it's completely empty everything's gone the furniture's gone everything and this is in a week so i i go out and i and i really don't have any other choice so i call the i write the number and the name of the lady the realtor down and i go home and i call her and i said look i said you have a house at such and such an address and i said it's up for sale and i was wondering if you have any contact information for the couple that are selling it and she's like you know that's the creepiest thing and i said what she's like well, I got a call from this guy, and he said he wanted to put the house for sale. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay. She's like, but then he told me all the business had to go through his grandmother and that they had to leave right away, which made no sense. So I called his work, and I asked, and they said he just didn't start, he just stopped showing up for work. We're talking a really good state job. Yeah. You know, he just stopped coming. Hmm. And so I called the grandmother, asked the lady if she could give a message to the grandmother that I was trying to reach this couple and what have you. And she said, sure, I, I could do that for you. So she gave me the message and or gave them the message. And the grandma called me and she said, I don't know what to tell you because I've talked to him on the phone, but he won't let me see him. And I don't know where they're at. All he told me was he gave me power of attorney to sell the house. So to this day, to this day, you don't I, know what I happened to them. I have no idea what happened to them. I do know that somewhere in my life, I, I really truly believe before I die, I will bounce back into these people because this was left unfinished. I mean, do you hope that's what happens? Or are you hoping that's that that won't be the case? <laughs> On one hand, because I really would like to see them have peace and I'd like to know the resolution. Yeah. I would like to know. Um, on the other hand, I know it's going to be a difficult thing, Yeah. but I, I have to tell you that was the first time I really understand, understood the, um, the depth of the pain, the physical and emotional pain a person under possession went through. Yeah. And to me, that is probably more terrifying than anything. Is that probably the most powerful thing that you've come in contact with? Do you think? 
I would say because that's the only one you've you've never been able to like handle, right? Well, because we were still in the process of it when it took off. It knew we were working, and so it took it took them away from us. Well, wouldn't a cross bother most? It or does it usually not care? No. Well, they'll sometimes not. They'll sometimes try to fake you out. Like with Madeira telling the stories she told. Yeah. And it was like, oh, my name is Bale, you know? And I'm laughing because I'm like, dude, Bale would have nailed my ass to the wall, you know? Let's get real. You know? And then the next EVP we get is, leave, please. <laughs> you know? Yeah, right. Bale's got manners. You know? <laughs> right. So, um, but they'll try. Like I had a place where the ghost would, or the demonic would pick up the Bible and skitter it across the floor. Like it was bowling with it or skipping stones. And it was to try to impress upon you that they aren't afraid. Even though they are afraid, it's kind of like whistling in the dark for them. Yeah. Like if they can blow your mind, then maybe you'll just go away. Well, have you ever seen one that couldn't pick up something or like, like if it, if it went to touch something like it would ah, you know do, do, do those things actually deter them i want to say this as clearly and succinctly as i can all relics yeah bibles are a relic yeah crosses are a relic holy water is a relic all relics are of absolutely no power whatsoever without faith it is the faith of the behold, of the holder that imbues them with the power. Okay. So, um, and I will go back to a Bible story for that. You know, there's a story in the New Testament about some of the apostles who were casting out de- devils in Christ's name. Right. And there was this group of brothers who came along who were watching it. And they're like, dude, we can do that too. So they do the same stuff that the apostles are doing. And the demon turns around and soundly thrashes them. And it pins one of the men. And he's like, I don't understand. I don't understand. And he's like, Paul, we know. And Christ, we know. But who are you? Because there's no faith. Mm -hmm. So faith is a component that's missing. Faith is the strength. It is the strength. It is the strength of it. And it's an underlying theme in, I think, a lot of horror stories. So, well, yeah, but usually, you know, in in the horror films or whatever, it's like, oh, you present the cross, they they get, you know, whatever. Well, some. I mean, I think that there's this, uh, in The Shining by, or not The Shining, excuse me, but uh, Salem's Lot by Stephen King, Mm -hmm. there's this amazing scene where um, the, the vampire is confronting the preacher at the church and he says shaman i am not afraid of this and he crushes the cross in his hand and it's because the minister didn't have faith uh and and it's you know it's a real underlying theme and a lot of real horror sure and and a, a really good fictional horror as well. i just didn't know if there was like a different level of power or something that it affects some and not others or something but that makes sense yeah it's always about your faith. That's why at the end of the day when you're doing something like that, you're pitting yourself against that. Right. And it's you're really banking on your faith being stronger than it is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's one of the reasons I always tell them right up front, look, you can do what you need to to me. If you kill me, I know where I'm going, and there's five more coming behind me. I know that. But let me tell you, I read the end of the book, and you lose. If my life gets forfeited in the process, oh well, you lose. That's disconcerting because they are not used to that. And I just let them know right up front, this is where I stand. Yeah, well, most people are too concerned with their own mortality over anything else. 
self-preservation. I don't want to die. There's not a, a moment in my life I want to die now. Yeah. But if the option is to be a coward and let that person suffer, I, I don't know that that's an option. It would be like pulling somebody out of a burning building. You don't really think about it. Right. In that moment, you don't think about it. Yeah. And I would say that's one of the two strongest entities. The other one would be the one from West Virginia that we talked about. That one almost handed me my hat. Yeah. Who are we getting? We're, we're going to be doing an episode on that, right? Yes. With who? Uh, Chris and Charlie, who were both there. Okay. So, yeah, I, see, I was wondering if, because just for, so everybody knows, like, there are times that I've edited something out. Mm-hmm. because Patty and I have realized that we kind of have a responsibility and we just kind of willy nilly talked about it. But you know, there's certain things that we don't think people should try or should do, or we don't want to say, this is how you do it. Um, and, and you don't informationally and people go, Oh, so that's how you do it. Okay. I'll do it. And it's like, no, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> so, yeah. so, you know, we've, that's why we don't do these live because we, right. we kind of make sure that we're, not putting out things that are detrimental. Right. And, and I don't think you should wake up on Tuesday and decide you're a demonologist. I'm not a demonologist. Yeah. I'm well, not. So that's that's what I was going to say. Like, So we're, we're never actually going to go through specific processes on no. either thing, either or ghosts. Because there, there was a time where you said, I said, well, where's he at? How'd you get him? And you just go, he's just somewhere that can't bother anybody else anymore. In but you dark, wouldn't say cold and desolate place where he may do no. Yeah, harm. but yeah. you you I didn't say him. you didn't say how you did it or anything. And is that something that we are ever going to cover, or is that something we're specifically not covering because the normal person shouldn't be going out and trying to do this themselves? Well, it's a difficult thing to cover because. Um, it's not like there's a formula okay. or a, a, a set of words you can say. Words are, again, relics. And so it really comes down to you pitting your will against it and knowing how to push its energy. And that takes time and experience and talent. Right. And um, you should not attempt it if you're not able to fulfill it. Mm-hmm. Um and but what should they do? Say they're a family affected. What what should they be doing? Just trying to stay strong and have faith? Honestly, because the best can't... thing I say to anybody at a place where I'm, I'm going to go, I tell them, you must stop being afraid. Yeah. Because fear feeds it. Mm-hmm. It gives it, it's the center of attention. Two, stop talking about it. Right. Because when you're on the phone to Mary, you're saying to this thing, Oh my God, it's paying attention to me. Yep, that human's paying attention. I think I'm going to skitter something else across the floor. So just ignore it. Mm-hmm. As hard as it is, just ignore it. And even I think Madeira talked a little bit about me telling her, stop giving it attention. Right. Stop focusing energy on it. Pray it away. Just, dear Lord, this is in your hands. Blah, blah. You know? So if you can... Do that. And that's for, that just is kind of Car- goes for Car-plush. any. Carplash. Every, every site I ever go to, I tell them that. Okay. And then I also tell them, um, if you need, to, if you need somebody like me, find a good person, a reputable person. They're probably not going to charge you. They should not charge you. They should be 
and and you need to vet them. People don't vet ghost hunters. Right. They don't even know what to look for to vet a ghost hunter. But let yeah. me tell you, well, we're we, not all we made cover, equal. Right. Yeah. We cover that in episode three, I want to say. Yeah. But we just, be yeah. careful. You know, find somebody who's responsible. Find somebody who um, has done this a long time, who has a track record. Ask if you can talk to people whose homes they've been in. Mm-hmm. Because you know what? If you got satisfied people saying, yeah, these are the real deal, you got a better shot at having a good investigator. Um, I tell people, ask if they work under the Judeo-Christian faith because they may not. They may be inviting things into your home that you don't want there. But that's not the only way to... You can use your own faith, right? Or is, There's... Because it's, it's... Is it more about the energy that you're exuding or... So you can do a ritual or is it's there... A, it's more complicated than that. Okay. Um, because... I'm just wondering if it has to be Christian. I always work through the Christian faith. I think that's the but strongest... But have you heard of it? But the other thing you have to always take into yeah. account is what the entity is. Right. If it's Native American, it may not respond to anything Judeo-Christian. Um, there's a, a house in... Um, Franklin County, Franklin County. And the woman who bought the or rented the house, um, she rented it for very little because it needed a lot of repairs, painting and stuff like that. And the landlord said, I'll give you six months of almost no rent, which is what she needed to get on her feet again. It was her and her two children mm-hmm. in exchange for her doing the work. And so she's in the house and she's by herself and it's prior to them moving in and she's painting trying to get the worst of that out of the way before the kids and the fingerprints and all that come right rolling through yeah and um a series of things happen footsteps blowing on the back of her neck uh she would lay the paintbrush down to go down to the bathroom and come back and find the handle stuck in the paint um what a jerk you know stuff like that yeah and one day she um, heard rattling on the screen door, the metal screen door. Mm-hmm. And it bent the screen door bottom out like something was trying to work its way out of the house. Mm-hmm. Um, and it took some force to bend a screen door like that. And um, this continued on for day after day. And she's getting progressively more frightened. But she's also kind of stuck. She's got no money. She's given the landlord everything she's got. They can't go anywhere else. So one day, out of exasperation and fear, she gets um, gets up. She starts to yell at this thing. And she's like, look, there is nowhere else I can go. So you can either like it or not like it. Stay or not stay. I don't give a you know, this is where I'm going to live with my kids. I got nowhere else to go. Mm-hmm. And it all got quiet for a while. And they moved in. I was one of those, like I call it do-it-yourself, you know, house cleansing. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and that's that works if you mean it. But you got to have the force of meaning it behind it. And for a few months, everything was good. And um, then stuff starts happening again. Starts happening. And it's touching. She's a blonde lady, and it was touching her hair, and it was touching her children, and very um, disconcerting. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's one thing to have somebody touch you; it's another thing to have them touch your children. And if they can touch your children, it can do what anything. else can they do? It, yeah, yeah. So it's frightening. So she finally gets a f- friend of mine who's sensitive, and she um, contacts her, and she says, "Could you come in and check the house out?" And the woman walked in, and she said, "Oh, you have an, an Indian here." 
And she's like, what do you mean I have an Indian here? She's like, his name is Jujuba. It's actually one of my books, my older books. And she starts to explain that, you know, he, this, this um, house is on a path that he traveled as a man. And that, you know, he died somewhere in this vicinity. Mm -hmm. And how he died, why he died, what happened to him, all that, I don't know. But at the end of the day, what they came up with is they they made a little altar in the basement. And they put tobacco and uh, cornmeal and different things that he would have recognized. And then told him, you can stay here. Mm -hmm. And we honor you and your faith. And we mean no harm, but... Just stay here. Don't come upstairs. It scares everybody. And it worked. What about when she went downstairs? Did he she didn't bother him you. Oh, it, okay. He didn't bother her. He was there. She could tell. But he was um, much more respectful because they had gone to the trouble. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to say. Always yelling first at it is not always a good thing. No, but she was just scared. And she <laughs> had no recourse. Like what my friend did, yelling at it. Um was actually detrimental to it because mm-hmm. it wasn't a bad entity. So um, it just kind of made it sad right? or whatever. <laughs> but yeah. But I thought that was a, an interesting story because they ended up having to go into its faith in order to get it to behave. Mm. So, you know, sometimes you have to figure out what they think. Cause right. again, you know, perception is reality for them. Yeah. And so you have, especially with ghosts, but demonics are a totally different entity. But with ghosts, you may have to go into whatever they believed. Yeah. Right. So. So that means you have to figure that part out. Right. And they don't always tell you. How dare they? I mean, yeah. They don't <laughs> what? Ghosts have them. secrets? Yes, ghosts have secrets. I know. <laughs> Lots of them sometimes. Don't we all? All right. Um. Do you have any other stories? I have that, tons. That you Do want you to hear a story from not too far from here? Claysburg. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Stop bringing it home. Stop bringing it close to me. Uh, now, I mean, there's people in the trees nearby. There's, oh. No, okay. I, and I'm not sure. I keep thinking I told you this story, but if I did, you can stop me and we can edit it out. But, um. There is, um, at the end, uh, during World War II, there was a young couple um, that lived in Claysburg, and his, their names were um, Reuben Rock and uh, Luella Dively Rock. And they got married um, just around the time the war started, and he, he joined up. Mm-hmm. He ends up going to, sell, um, to Africa, and he ends up fighting Rommel. And there he gets mustard gassed which, of course, scorches his lungs and, and causes him severe health problems. He ends up mustered out and sent back home as an invalid. Before he had left, he had begun the shell of what would be their home. And so when he comes back, you know, Luella and him take up housekeeping in this shell of a house. And he tries to finish it, but he gets he's just too sick. He can't breathe and what have you. And it becomes patently obvious that he's going to die. Um, Luella's devastated and they don't have any income back then there were no benefits there Mm -hmm. was no death benefits at all Um, certainly no burial funds no nothing so um, he blames the military for him being sick and he tells her he does not want buried in his uniform and he also tells her that while he was in Africa he had met these shamans and these um, people that practice these other religions and he found it fascinating and he has this little box of 
figurines and stuff that he and fetishes and stuff that he had brought back with him mm-hmm. and um she thinks of them as like witchcrafty things you know and um she doesn't like them being in the house but she doesn't fuss because she doesn't want to agitate the situation right so he passes away um and the local vfw comes over and says hey we know you're you're struggling you don't have any money we would like to pay for his funeral but he needs to be buried in his uniform. This is a conundrum because she vowed to him she wouldn't do it. In the end, she just didn't have the money, so she buried him in his uniform. And um, that night, she goes back to her little co- her little cottage, and um, her sister comes with her, and they hear what sounds like somebody hopping on the roof of the cottage, and they go out and they look, and it's Reuben. And he's up on the roof, and he's yelling. And... They're terrified. And night after night, this continues on. He's up on the roof. He's walking around the unfinished upstairs. He's looking in the windows at him. He's haunting her. And she begins to lose weight. She's under exceeding amounts of stress. She's like, oh, it's Reuben. And he's he's back because I buried him in his uniform. And I know it. And he's, he's coming to take me and blah, blah, blah. And it's just horrible. So finally, after a few, um, few days of this, um, her family comes and gets her and says that's it we're done enough your sister's seen it your brothers have seen it we believe you all you're going home and they take her home but she still continues to lose weight and she just can't eat she's just a nervous wreck and she says Reuben's coming to get her well now the interesting thing about this is it actually makes the local newspaper oh this is where i found the accounts is in the newspaper and um that wouldn't happen today <laughs> Uh, well, because it was it was like a seven days wonder okay. at the time, you know, and finally one day she's talking to her mom and she says about that little box that Reuben had with the little fetishes and the figurines mm-hmm. from the the witch doctors and stuff. Right. And her mother says to her, "That's what's holding him here. We're gonna get rid of it." So she says to her one son, "You go over to the house. You find this box. Luella, where's it at?" She tells him. And they bring it back and they pry it open. And in the box are these little feather fetishes and these things. And a picture of Luella is attached to one of the fetishes. Like he had like ripped a hole in the picture and stuck the, wrapped the fetish around it. And so it was kind of dangling off the picture. Mm-hmm. And her mom pulls the fetish off and she opens the cook stove and she throws the fetishes and stuff into the cook stove and throws the picture on the table this is what it says in the newspaper account this is the exact word it uses it says that in front of the entire family the picture undulated across the table and fell into luella's lap her mother grabbed it up and burned it and still luella is continuing to lose weight and she is still a nervous wreck and she is not getting any better at all. So there was a gentleman over here in Everett who was um, part minister, part powwow doctor, part evangelist. He was, you know, a little bit of everything. <laughs> okay. And um, sounds was, like what I believe his name is Mr. Ferguson. Sounds like what I would do if I was, a, you know, yeah. And um, <laughs> he was known for dealing with stuff like this. Yeah. And he was also a traveling, like I said, traveling minister. So her family contacted him at a church he was preaching at and said, we need your help. And he came over, talked to Luella and everybody and walked through the cottage and all this. And 
and to every to my absolute surprise as I'm reading these articles, um, he goes to the police and he tells them we need to disinter that body. He needs to be taken out of the grave. Hmm. There's things I need to do to stop this before this girl dies. So on an early early in the morning, one morning, a, a, a police officer and her brothers and her dad and this Mr. Ferguson all come to the cemetery and he lays out this white sheet and they dig up the body and they take it out of the casket and he takes the uniform off the body and he salts the body and he wraps it in the white sheet and they rebury it and he burns the clothes and the haunting stops. Wait, so they took off the uniform mm-hmm. first? Okay. Yeah. And the haunting stopped. Now, Luella Dively, 20 years ago, was still alive. And I actually have, I met her once. Um, and it's, it was through a series of articles that I, um, I found out about this. And the house actually sat in Claysburg until 15, 20 years ago. They finally tore it down. Nobody would ever live in it. Because it had such a bad reputation. Yeah. But it, it was on the same street as the uh, the library. And I would go to the library and tell ghost stories. And um, I started to hear about it. And that's where I heard the first rumors of the story. And then I began to look into it. And I found newspaper articles, much to my surprise, that documented a lot of this. Hmm. Crazy. And then in an interesting twist, so... I, I met the granddaughter of Mr. Ferguson, who, in Everett, um, and... She approached me at a speaking engagement and said, you wrote about my grandfather. And I said, I did. And she's like, yeah. And then she started, I'm like, oh my gosh, you're Mr. Ferguson's. And she's like, yeah, I remember him telling us the story about that case. So moral of the story, honor honor the wishes of the dead. Yep. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Or they will come back to haunt you. Well, at least in his instance, he did. So, so when the haunting stopped, did she get control of her weight and stuff then? Yeah, she got better. So it wasn't anything dealing with the shaman's box it was i don't know i mean i don't i don't know if it's her if it was imagination yeah because she felt so guilty i mean or... I've, yeah i've had know. like severe anxiety about nonsense but things the and... um the undeniable part of it was that the sister saw him on multiple occasions the brother saw him on several occasions the picture undulating across the floor or the table was kind of impressive to me right right so something was going on along with possibly her guilt. Yeah. Hmm. Although it is kind of not cool that he came back and haunted her. No, <laughs> that's, it's that's not cool. That's kind of not, yeah. That's not nice. But um, but that's the story. And it's a, it's a fairly well-documented story hmm. by, you know, modern standards. And that the reporter interviewed a lot of the principal people and then told the story. Hmm. Interesting. And I actually have pictures of Luella. I have pictures of Reuben and I have pictures of Mr. Ferguson. So anyway, honor the dead. Honor the dead. Honor their wishes. Honor their wishes. Maybe find out what they are first. And if not, if you can't, explain it. Yeah. I don't know that he understood. He was just so much pain and so sick. Maybe all she had to do was talk to him about it. Yeah. But by the time the idea had come up. Yeah. He was already gone. Oh, okay. You know. All right. Well, these have been some scary stories. And uh, we'll catch you guys later. 